Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about quantitative easing, something you might see or hear about in the media. And I thought it'd be good to uh, sort of unpack it a little bit and talk about, explain what it is and whether as investors we should be worried about the impacts of quantitative easing. Uh, So let's first uh, frame the situation. Uh, Essentially, a ratings agency, a global rating agency called Fitch, um, estimates the value, the total value of quantitative easing uh, during this year could reach nine trillion Australian dollars. So to put that in context, that is nearly half the amount of total global quantitative easing that occurred between year two thousand and nine and two thousand and eighteen. The Federal Reserve in the US alone has pumped $4 trillion into the market over the last 11 weeks. And so it's an absolutely unprecedented level of quantitative easing. And, uh, and it's bound to have impacts on market and, and investment prices and liquidity and these sorts of things. Uh, and is it something that we should be concerned about Uh, as long-term investors, and if so, what should we do about it? Uh, So let's start with a bit of background of what is it, uh, and in fact, let's talk about what central banks do. So the role of central banks around the world, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, RBA, uh, is to, they're in charge of monetary policy. And the aim of monetary policy is to ensure you've got a healthy economy and that the inflation rate is in within a stated goal. The government will normally dictate what that goal is in Australia, the band is between two and three percent. That's where they want inflation. When the economic activity increases and the economy approaches full capacity, uh, that's when inflation can begin to arise. And in that situation, a central bank would normally increase interest rates. Uh, and because if we increase interest rates, it means you and I have less money to spend, but also corporate profits are lower. And that tends to cool economic activity. Of course, when the economy slows down, what the central bank will do is tend to cut rates uh, and that will increase corporate profits and increase consumer spending typically. And interest rates are really a central bank's primary tool for managing monetary policy. But when interest rates go to zero or close to it, um, of course, uh, that no longer becomes an effective tool. Uh, Of course, you can go negative interest rates. You know, some fixed rate loans in Germany recently are negative 0.04%, which means you can go and borrow $100 and you don't have to repay the full $100 uh, when the term uh, finishes. Um, But negative interest rates uh, are relatively ineffectual uh, in terms of uh, their monetary policy impact. Uh, And certainly in Australia, the... Uh, Governor Reserve Bank, Governor Lowe, has said no negative interest rates in Australia, which I think is probably the right thing. Uh, So what is quantitative easing? Well, when interest rates stop being effective monetary policy tools, uh, central banks have to start considering more unconventional mechanisms. And quantitative easing is really the process of uh, the central bank buying investment assets such as bonds. And they do that by issuing new currency, that is often referred to as printing money. 
So they create or increase uh, the supply of currency. Uh, and essentially what it aims to do is stimulate the economy by inject, injecting cash into the economy. So let's have a look back in 2009 when we were in the middle of the GFC. Uh, what the US Federal Reserve started to do, which is the US Central Bank, uh, it started buying what's called mortgage-backed securities. And essentially what that means is that a bank could come and sell a mortgage-backed security to the Federal Reserve and say, okay, I'm going to sell you this bond uh, for $200 million, uh, I'm going to pay you um, 0.2 of a percent, for example, so very low interest rate. Uh, that means the bank now has $200 million it can go lend uh, to uh, home buyers and investors and so forth. And it was a way of pumping money into the banking system uh, to get banks lending into a residential sector to try and stimulate that sector and, and uh, help property prices recover. And to a large degree, it worked really well, and it actually achieved its aim. Uh, but quantitative easing isn't limited to mortgage-backed securities. Central banks can buy any assets, so including corporate bonds if they want to get money out into the, the um, corporate sector. Uh, and even Bank of Japan has bought equities uh, to try and, again, stimulate capital uh, in markets. Um, Central banks can target certain areas as well, uh, and most recently um, uh, they've been targeting the SME sector. Uh, so let's look at what's happened uh, this year. Well, everyone's jumped on the bandwagon this year in terms of central banks, uh, and the RBAs uh, participated, uh, the US Fed Reserve, Bank of England, uh, European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, and I'm sure there's other uh, banks around the world, central banks around the world in developed markets that have participated in quantitative easing programs. Um, but they've been much wider and significantly deeper than they were previously. So certainly a lot of liquidity has been pumped uh, into the markets. Um, and the aim has really been around buying corporate bonds uh, and the aim is to increase lending into the small to medium enterprise sector in particular. Uh, and the US Federal Reserve has been buying exchange-traded funds as well that invest in corporate bonds, and some of those ETF products they've been investing in uh, invest in non-investment-grade corporate bonds or what's often called junk bonds. Uh, and so really, which is, which is bizarre because you normally wouldn't see a central bank invest in any higher-risk assets, um, uh, but it seems like in the US they're not uh, that too perturbed about what they're uh, investing in. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Fitch reckons it, it's going to, uh, the, the level of quantitative easing will, will approach $9 trillion Australian dollars uh, this year, which is, again, a ridiculous amount of money printing, essentially. Uh, the RBA has participated too. It's been uh, providing very low cost of funds to banks for a three-year fixed rate of 0.25%. Uh, and the idea was of that is to fund the banks so that they can support the um, corporate sector as we get through the lockdown and also obviously um, uh, homeowners uh, switching to really low three-year fixed rates uh, has been a way of sort of helping people through uh, the coronavirus turmoil. Uh, so what is the impact? What is the longer-term impact of uh, QE? Well, there's been a study by Wharton Business School a quite a deep study. Now we have nearly a decade's worth of data. Uh, and essentially, 
the key finding is that what it can do is crowd out certain types of lending. So certainly in the during the GFC in the US, uh, the Fed Reserve was buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities, um, and so most of the banks stopped lending or at least reduced lending to a, a significant level uh, to businesses and corporates and really just focused on the housing sector. Uh, and that can be problematic uh, because, uh, you know, the housing sector doesn't generate uh, economic activity per se, uh, not like it does in the business sector. And also that can lead to um, price bubbles as well. That was the main uh, sort of uh, findings of that that uh, quite deep study. Um, there's two main criticisms, however, of QE or possible criticisms um, the first one is that the bank is interfering in a free market and that could artificially influence prices of investments. Um, and, you know, in a free market, the market participants set the prices of investments. And if there's no buyers for a particular investment, well, there's no buyers. Uh, that means that investment is arguably at that point in time worth nothing. Uh, and that's how a free market works. Uh, when COVID hit, for example, no one wanted to buy bonds, even seemingly very safe investment-grade bonds, and this created a liquidity crunch. So uh, investors weren't able to sell their bonds. They now had an investment that was essentially a liquid. Uh, and for issuers uh, that needed to renegotiate or roll rollover facilities, that wasn't available to them either. Uh, and that, if that liquidity crunch had of... Uh, persisted for a longer period of time, uh, that could have really exacerbated the impacts of the COVID uh, lockdown. And that's why central banks jumped in to intervene. But really, they're intervening in a free market. And so free market supporters would say that um, such intervention creates artificial prices and alters investors' risk premiums, which means that you know, if investors start to think that everything is too big to fail and if everything went bad, the, the government's going to jump in and bail them out, uh, then investors start to become a little bit blind to risk and asset bubbles can be created. Uh, so governments involving themselves in a, in a free market activity isn't always a, a great thing. Now, the second criticism of um, QE is that it can potentially cause inflation. So inflation incurs because the volume of printed money in circulation increases. Um, and so, you know, if there's um, $10, 10 $1 coins in Australia and suddenly we double the amount, now there's $21 coins, uh, potentially the value of that dollar then reduces. And when you go out and buy your loaf of bread, instead of costing $2, it now costs $3 because the value of that money has reduced and therefore it creates that level of inflation. Um Except for the fact that really QE has been used or implemented since 2009, it really hasn't led to higher inflation at this point in time. And there could be a few reasons for that. Firstly, um, there are signs that there had been or has been a lot of money hoarding. Uh, so that is that, that individuals and corporations are saving money. So it's not actually going into the system. So then therefore liquidity or the, the volume of money in circulation has increased, or at least increased as much. Uh, and secondly, wage inflation has been well below trend, uh, and so maybe the that has offset some of the uh, impacts of QE. Very difficult to kind of isolate these things because whilst uh, QE has changed, a lot has changed at the same time. 
So to try and isolate what is the impact of this one, you know, this QE um, issue, very difficult to unpack. Um, in terms of the future of monetary policy, well, um, it'd be very, very interesting, I think, to see what happens over the next few decades. And I think the big question is whether economies and markets will be able to support higher interest rates and when that, uh, if and when that occurs and to what extent. Uh, for example, Japan's been stuck on near zero interest rates for about 25 years. So once you're on zero interest rates, certainly from a Japanese perspective, it can be difficult to get off them. Um, uh, if interest rates remain persistently low for a number of years, and I think they will, then um, quantitative easing is almost certainly likely to remain. Um, the Fed Reserve did, during uh, 2018 and 19 start to wind down its balance sheet. Uh, that is, uh, stop the amount of um, purchasing of assets and, in, in fact, uh, try and pull a bit of that money out of circulation again just to normalise their balance sheet. But every time they talk about doing that, the share market gets the jitters. So there's not a big appetite really um, across the board uh, for central banks to sort of start stop quantitative easing or at least start winding back their balance sheets. And the same happened in Europe as well. They started talking about it and, um, and no one really liked it. Uh, it's difficult to really assess, as I said, the impact of quantitative easing because so many things are moving around at the same time, particularly you've got COVID going on and um, uh, trade wars and all these sorts of things. But to, to my mind, endlessly printing money and buying assets when investors desert the markets doesn't seem like a wise practice to me. And to me, it feels like, look, at some point, um, someone's going to have to pay the piper. You know, there's got to be uh, some implications of, of such behaviour. Um, uh, of course, it could artificially uh, inflate prices, you know, particularly if people think that uh, money is cheap, they don't need to be as deliberate with their investment decisions, that if everything went wrong, the government's there. And maybe if we look to the share market, we look at manu uh, uh, listed entities like Tesla, the car manufacturer Tesla. Uh, it's worth circa $230 billion Australian dollars at the moment. That's twice the value of CBA. It's never recorded a profit. Its debt's increased by five times over the past five years. Uh, and its net assets are worth less than $10 billion Australian dollars. So how could it be worth $230 billion? And maybe that's where all the risk lies. In those sorts of businesses, those sorts of sectors, we see it in um, IT as well and tech you know, some of the high valuations, you know, someone like Apple, for example, very fundamentally sound, strong profit, strong cash flow, strong balance sheet, lower PE, no problem. But when you compare that to a Netflix, you know, uh, Netflix, there's no rational um, valuation metrics there. Uh, one of the uh, touted reactions to quantitative easing is to invest in gold because the uh, thesis is that quantitative easing will eventually lead to inflation. Uh, and so gold is a natural hedge to inflation because you've got that um, hard currency asset, a, a physical asset, I should say, uh, that's going to be protected from uh, devaluing currencies. Um, uh, but with gold at nearly all-time highs, that doesn't really seem like a good investment. And QE hasn't caused inflationary pressure over the last decade. Uh, and I don't think 
it's likely to do so. If it does, then um, central banks can just increase interest rates anyway. We're coming off a very low base, zero base almost, uh, so that's not out of the realms of possibility to try and curtail inflation. I think overall our best um, response to uh, QE is to avoid overvalued markets, sectors and companies that are trading at unjustifiably high valuation multiples. For example, during the uh, dot-com bubble or the tech wreck, uh, Warren Buffett didn't participate in any tech investments at that stage. He was, uh, it was very well um, documented that he was saying that tech valuations didn't make a hell of a lot of sense to him, uh, just like Tesla's valuation at the moment doesn't like it, make a hell of a lot of se- uh, sense to me. Uh, and as such, he uh, avoided any tech investments, which proved, uh, given the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, proved to be a very wise decision. So I think we can leave um, on one one fundamentally sound statement. That is that your starting valuation in the share market is perhaps the best indicator of future expected returns, so long as your investment methodology is sound and robust. So if you invest when markets are at their peak or at highs, at very high valuations, you probably can't expect uh, very good future returns. If you invest when a market looks very, very cheap, um, then it's a very, there's a very high probability of you enjoying uh, above mean returns in the, in the medium to longer term. And I think that's the best way to deal with uh, any potential impacts of QE, which are probably largely unknown or unascertainable at this particular point in time. Okay, a bit of a technical one uh, this week, but I hope it's been of interest. And if you see uh, quantitative easing being talked about um, from now on, at least you know what they're uh, talking about and make a little bit more sense. Okay, until next week, bye for now.